Hello, friends, and welcome again to another episode of The Interesting Hour. I am your host, Justin Kupinoff, and with me, as always, is... Devesh Verma. Hello, everybody. This week's episode is brought to you by Core Foundation. Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. Like us, share us, do things with us, because we love you. (laughs) (laughs) Core Foundation. We love you. <laughs> Period. <laughs> That's it. So today's an awesome episode because we get to talk about something that honestly doesn't everybody love to think and wonder about aliens and what is out there in the universe. Well, actually, Justin, there's the economy happening right now. There's a government shutdown looming around us. Uh, uh, there's a lot of things here on Earth that we need to be worried about. Well, if you'd like to plant your head in the stars for the next hour or so, uh, okay. feel free to join us, Seth Shostak from from the SETI Institute is our guest today. Yeah, buddy. Actually, you know what? Twist my arm. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is amazing. And uh, we talk about what exactly these scientists are doing up there and what they are doing to try to find evidence of life out there. Alien among the stars. life. Alien life. Uh, this is something is awesome as anyone who's listened to the show. I'm a, I'm a stupid space freak. So like this is, <laughs> this is, this is a cool episode and I'm, Stoked that Seth took the time out to be with us because this guy's featured on a lot of uh, programming that you may have seen already. Yeah, um, even programming that I didn't even realize he was a part of in the episode. I mentioned yeah. uh, Ancient Aliens. Little surprise there. I was like, oh my goodness, I should have watched more than the pilot of the episode. But um, <laughs> no, Seth was awesome. And it's so great awesome. because he basically kind of runs the show up there. Yeah. So we we really got somebody to talk to us who knows the ins and outs of what's going on up there. Yeah. So let, I don't even want to talk anymore about this. Let's just play the episode. It was yeah. a good episode. Let's get into it. Yeah. Enjoy, guys. And ladies. One, two, three, four. And here we are with Dr. Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. How you doing, Seth? Well, pretty good. Uh, the weather up here is good. The uh, my colleagues are generally amiable, and uh, the work isn't too onerous. <laughs> That's awesome. And just so our listeners know, uh, Seth is uh, skyping into our uh, today from. San Francisco, is it? Mountain View? Mountain View, California. Silicon Valley, just uh, about 35 miles south of San Francisco. Nice. Thank you for being on our show today. It is a privilege. It is an exciting episode for us. Uh, We're nerds, so we want to (laughs) talk about what your work's all about. But before we get into that, Let's talk about your background. Let's get in some basic information out to our listeners. Let's talk about baby Seth, <laughs> when <laughs> Seth was a child. <laughs> so as a, as a kid, was this something that uh, always interested you, uh, space and science in Astronomy. general? Well, I think it did. It's, it's hard to think back. There were, there were so many interests, and, and these tended to become bigger interests, I think, beginning at about the age of eight. I I didn't know anything about astronomy until the age of eight when I found a diagram of the solar system in the back of an atlas that I was thumbing through uh, in the the dining room at home. But I had been interested in science and certainly technology. My dad uh, was a ham, that is to say an amateur radio operator. So down in the basement, he had this equipment and I would occasionally go down there, sit on his lap, and he would tune in the world or talk to people very far away using this uh, really magical equipment that he had down there. From my point of view, it was magical. So I was interested in technology and science, I think, from a very early age. And 
as I say, after the age of eight, I began to develop an interest in astronomy. And I think by the age of 10, I had built a telescope. These are, I think, very commonplace stories. But uh, nonetheless, it, it's, it's true for me, too. Hey, wait, it's commonplace to just build a telescope at 10. I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, I think it is. I, I honestly don't think there was anything special about my my childhood other than that i had the good fortune to be exposed to a lot of different things i used to go to the movies all the time and the movies said lots of aliens so i'm sure that i got interested in aliens also in uh, in this span of years between eight and eleven yeah wow that's you know seth i'm just being real here i i want to stargaze i like stargazing i have a dslr camera like i try to take out at night whenever i have the time to you know stay up late at night like that um and even as a uh, 31-year-old man, I still don't know how to make my own telescope. I would love to make my own telescope. I think that is awesome. Uh, because looking at it, it seems like a daunting task. You have to find the right opticals. You have to find uh, the right structure. Do you, how long did it take you to build that at 10? Well, I mean, I didn't make all the parts. I got to mm. say, I just put things together. Mm. So uh, I, I'm not sure I should claim really any credit. <laughs> long to put it together. Mind you, mind you, mind you, today... You can buy a telescope that's uh, rather better than anything you can make yourself. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. There'll be a lot of people offended by that comment. <laughs> but it is true that uh, you know the days in which people made their own telescopes, I, I think that those are largely past tense. There's still some people out there that'll grind their mirrors and all that sort of thing and they'll build the, the telescope body, build their own mounts. I mean, there are people who do that. I admire those people, I have to say. But a lot of people who are you know amateur astronomers today will buy an instrument. You know, it's kind of the same thing with amateur radio, actually, when I was a kid. You built your own equipment. Mm. But today, mm. for the same amount uh, that you would spend on parts, you can buy something that's, you know, made in Japan, usually, that's far better than anything you could build. So the question is, what are you interested in doing, building the equipment or looking at the sky? Right. So you think like it was, uh, it was around that time at age 10 where you kind of maybe made that decision that this is something that you wanted to actively do with your life? Well, I, I think it was one of the many possibilities. Unfortunately, I've been cursed for being interested in too many things. So, <laughs> Tell me about uh, it. That's why we do this show, with interviewing a ton of different people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up, and although at this point, you know, it's kind of moot. But uh, indeed, indeed, I was interested in many things, and I've had many different jobs. I've, you know been involved in television production, I've done computer animation, I work for the railroads, I mean, you know, writing, you name it, I, there's some chance I've done it. Uh, you know, weight guesser on the Santa Monica boardwalk, I don't know, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> yep. but astronomy has, is a long-term interest, that's for sure, because after all, one thing you can say about astronomy, it deals with really big picture stuff. It gives you a, a broader viewpoint. It's sort of like travel. So, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. When I feel like around 2010 or actually 2009, there's just like a huge like amount of content coming out like on Netflix and everything like that. That it just refueled my love for just astronomy, to seeing what space space exploration is going on. What are we doing? It, I feel like there's a lot of big movements going that way too. And actually, that's probably when I started hearing about SETI. Tell you the truth, um, it's it's it was I didn't hear about it from much people, but through these like you know these documentaries and these programs, it was. Kind of exciting to know that something like this exists in the world. Yeah, well, for sure. And, you know, even uh, when I was a kid, when television was still relatively new, uh, there were there were shows about science and also, if you will, kitchen science where you could do <laughs> these experiments at home, you know, and really frighten your parents. So 
that that's uh, <laughs> that's nothing new. I mean, I think getting kids interested in science is not such a hard thing to do. Keeping them interested is maybe harder because you know they grow up and then they want to do other things. But uh, kids are very interested to learn about you know how the world works. Why wouldn't they be interested? Of course, it's awesome. It, it's mind blowing because as you're saying, space is dealing with really big ideas and. I, there's just so much that can happen out there. It kind of freaks my mind out a little bit. To tell you the truth, <laughs> like what's going to happen to the solar system? What's going to, you know? There's so many different scenarios of how the world would end. It's kind of like, <laughs> like it's, well, it's supposed to end on November 19th. Just uh, so you know. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's with the uh, the planet colliding with us or something. Yeah, like that? planet Nibiru. Uh, this is its third time this uh, this fall actually. <laughs> <laughs> that Nibiru uh, is threatening to obliterate the world. It may or may not, but the advantage is if it does, you won't have to cook that Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So what odds are you given that uh, that we're going to be done on that day? <laughs> well, one part in several trillion, I would say. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's always a chance. <laughs> All right, well, cool. Uh, so, so after you went... Uh, and doing your schooling for all of this, how long after that uh, until you got involved with the SETI Institute? Well, uh, quite a while, actually. I uh, did graduate work in astronomy, and we were studying galaxies. That's what I was doing uh, back then. And a lot of that was in the L.A. area. I went to grad school in Pasadena. But then uh, I had jobs various places, and not always, always in astronomy, actually. But uh, I took a job in the Netherlands and Holland, and I stayed there for 13 years, again, working on galaxies. But not only. I mean, I got interested in SETI to the point where I actually did some experiments with a few other people in which we used the big radio telescopes that they have there in the Netherlands and uh, aimed them toward the center of our own galaxy, the center of the Milky Way, hoping to uh, overhear, you know, whatever is the uh, the biggest transmitter in the galaxy, providing Internet service to a couple of hundred billion stars <laughs> or whatever. So, so by the way, that's, that, that's a good idea to listen for signals coming from the center of the galaxy. But in any case, so then I was interested in a more professional way. I moved back to California um, quite, quite a number of years ago now, actually, and uh, was working in a software startup, actually, with one of my brothers. And uh, then I got a call from somebody here at the SETI Institute, and they say, you want a job here? And uh, at the time, I said, Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. I was just about to ask if this was something where you reached out to them or they reached out to you. But. No, somebody saw me at a party in Berkeley, California, who worked at the Institute, and they told their colleagues, they said, hey, did you know that Seth lives in California now? And it turned out <laughs> that the SETI Institute was located only two miles from where I live, so it was kind of convenient. Oh, that's great. That's funny. We had a, another guest on our show uh, back in season one, Dr. Garrett Lisi. I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, uh, but he was telling us that you know astrophysicists and these guys know how to party. <laughs> so I imagine the party in Berkeley was pretty wild. <laughs> I don't remember it as being wild. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't remember much of it at all. Uh oh, Seth. <laughs> yeah, uh, some of the hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, the hors d'oeuvres were wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So I guess uh, now we should. Uh, I guess we didn't even say what SETI means. I, if, if I'm sure people might know at this point, but uh, hopefully, actually, what happened when you talked about it, Justin? You were trying to. You're fielding questions for this interview. Yeah. What's going okay. On? So, you know, I was talking to some people before saying that this. I I was so excited to get this interview with you, and uh, I was just kind of wanted to gauge with my friends like who knew about SETI and who didn't. 
And the people that didn't know, it was like, I, they'd be like, hey, you know what SETI is? And they're like, oh, no. And I'm like, it's a, it's a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and it's a whole institute that's devoted to that. And with the reactions I got, you would, you would think that they would be, that they're thinking like, oh, so it's some dude in a basement that just has like his radio going 24-7. <laughs> like, and I'm like, no, these are scientists that are actually doing work. Like, so when, when you got the job offer, was there... Any part of you that was kind of like, oh, I don't, maybe I don't want to like put my career this way or anything yeah. like that. Was there any hesitation or anything like that? Well, I'll tell you, the only hesitation was that uh, I had an experience in which my job ended. That's when I was doing this software startup. It was, it was uh, funded by private capital. And at some point, the investors decided they didn't like the investment anymore. And suddenly, within 48 hours, you're out of a job. Wow. And that uh, I, I recommend that experience to everyone, by the way. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it isn't entirely pleasant, but on the other hand, it does force you to think about, well, if I suddenly didn't have a job, what could I do to, you know, fund my gusto-grabbing lifestyle? <laughs> and it involved things like, you know, food, shelter. Orders. Yeah, orders. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, quickly got together to, you know, figure which of my limited talents could be uh, monetized, and I was doing that. And so when I was offered a new job, I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'll only do it part-time because I don't want to be totally dependent on one source of income ever again. Mm-hmm. And uh, But as it turns out, you know, SETI is the kind of endeavor you don't really want to do it part-time. You find yourself so sucked in that you're doing it all the time anyhow, so you might as well get paid for a full-time job. So that's what happened, but I but I still do other things <laughs> just, uh, you know, to buy myself the occasional... Uh, burger at in and out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those are important purchases in and out burgers are pivotal to any person's diet <laughs> i personally believe um so when you're you say that you don't want to be half committed to something like this because it is a pretty awesome endeavor that you guys got going on there so it like could you walk us through like what what's the day-to-day like there like what like what are you actually doing when you come into work and and what what are you doing that's t- that takes up so much of your time there well uh, you know the facts are that most of my day now is consumed by answering email or something like that or <laughs> answering fund- our emails that's, that's what he's doing <laughs> a, a hundred emails every day yeah, but also fundraising because SETI uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence as you uh, already noted that is funded entirely by private donations in this country. And so the money we have to do this is very, very limited because you're dependent on people who will send you a $50 bill or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to pay people. There's also the observatory. We have an observatory. It's about 300 miles north of San Francisco in the Cascade Mountains of California, uh, 42 antennas. And we use it about 12 hours a day. By allowing somebody else to use it the other 12 hours a day, we can avoid the expenses of maintenance, which would run a million dollars a year. So we, we save that but at the expense of losing half the observing time. But we do use it every day. But, you know, that's all automated. I mean, it isn't like you see in the movies with Jodie Foster donning a pair of earphones, hoping <laughs> to hear something that sounds like E.T. or as it happened in the movie Contact, like a pile driver hitting a pod of whales or something so <laughs> you know I that's like not that the, movie that would, that would be really tedious come into work and hey, what are you going to do today well i'm just going to sit here with this cup of coffee my earphones on hoping to hear something i mean that you know 
and drive you nuts quickly. So all of that is automated, not to mention the fact that we monitor something like, I think it's 70 million channels simultaneously these days. Oh, wow. So that would be 35 million pairs of earphones. It'd be hard oh, to geez. wear them all. So <laughs> that, all that's automated. So the, the, the thinking is about, well, how can we improve the equipment? How can we speed up the search? Where should we be pointing the antennas? And stuff like that. Seth, you said something very interesting when you're explaining that. You use the words "this country." What kind of funding do you see in other countries? Like, does Holland have something better? Like, do other governments fund searching for extraterrestrial life? How does that work? Generally speaking, they do not. Uh, in fact, today, the you know, when I say today, I mean now. The only country that I think is doing SETI is the United States. Uh, that's kind of a new experience. Twenty years ago, the Soviet <laughs> Union. Well. 20, 30 years ago, the Soviet Union was doing some SETI work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Italians were doing some, but it's seldom gotten you know more widespread than that. The, the Chinese are certainly interested because they have a new antenna. It's called FAST. It's a convoluted acronym, but it's the world's biggest single dish antenna. It's a big thing. It's you know it's what is it? 600 meters. So it's like you know 2,000 feet across. That's a wow. pretty big wow. bowl, and. Uh, you know, they're still shaking down that antenna. That is to say, they're still trying to get it up to, you know, uh, ramming speed, if you will. So that that's uh, that's still underway. But they will do SETI, and they're doing some work with the University of California Berkeley SETI group. The funny thing is, the two most active SETI groups in the country are right here in the Bay Area. Uh, here in Silicon Valley is, of course, the SETI Institute. And the other group is uh, the University of California, Berkeley. They have a very active SETI group. And, in fact, a Silicon Valley billionaire gave them money to work for the next 10 years. So they actually have funding, although it's private funding. Do you usually work with them on any projects, or is it usually individualized per institute? We we try. Yeah, we we have projects that we work on together. But, you know, we don't do the same experiments. And, honestly, I think... uh, that that's actually a good thing in science. If everybody's doing the same experiment, particularly if you're talking about something like SETI, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's not a desktop experiment. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of discovery. It's like sending some explorer on a cheapy wooden ship out into the oceans and say, you know, go map everything you find that's new. And uh, challenge accepted. So, <laughs> challenge, <laughs> and you could put all the explorers on one ship, but actually, it's better to send them on separate ships to begin with. You'll you'll find stuff faster. But it's also the case that some of those ships are just going to, I don't know, they're going to crash and burn, but they are going to, you know, crash and sink. So you know, it's it's better to have multiple efforts. You get different ideas, different approaches, and when you don't quite know what you're going to find, if you're going to find anything probably better to have multiple approaches. Definitely. I know uh, Dr. Michio Kaku was talking about, is he part of the SETI Institute? I'm not even sure. Or does he, does he consult with you guys? No, he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if he is, he's kept a very low profile here. No, uh, <laughs> That's Dr. who that Kaku guy is, is in the mustache that comes in here at lunchtime. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think he's either NY, I think he's at City College, actually. He's a string theorist. He's not an astronomer, of course. Gotcha. Yeah, because I remember seeing one of these, again, my Netflix binging is... Uh, I, I see him in some of these special in these documentaries, and they he mentions like finding signals like not just a straight signal, but signals like segregated over time. I'm not sure. Again, this is very my brain is not as advanced as yours, so it's uh, it's hard to explain. But he has very he's he's speaking about very interesting ways of like how to, to interpret signals coming in from or alien signals, etc. But I digress. I need to go back. I want to ask you this question. You're explaining all these countries have like their own SETI initiatives, maybe or they were doing some stuff. Um, 
there's obviously some scientific backing to needing to fund this type of research or people wanted to find out more about this. What, like, it, it, I think that would be surprising to a lot of people, like, oh, this is actually something we're looking for. Okay, like, what, why are we doing this? Like, what background, what uh, current evidence do we have to keep going with this, like, to fund something like this? Well, there are two, two aspects to that. One is why would you be interested to know if there's <laughs> anybody out there? And the second thing is why do you think that there's anybody out there or do mm. you? Well, obviously, we think that there's somebody out there. Obviously, we, we, we wouldn't be doing the experiment otherwise. There's no point in looking for something if you don't think it's it's there. It'd be like asking, you know, Captain Cook, okay, we're going to fund your ship to go out into the South Pacific, and we want you to find and map all the islands uh, you can. And if he said, look, I don't think there are any islands out there. It's just <laughs> water. Uh, you know, then maybe they wouldn't fund them, and they, they certainly wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing with SETI. I mean, obviously, we think that there's somebody out there. Uh, the reason for that is that there are roughly a trillion, a trillion, that's with a T, that's a big number, a trillion planets in the Milky Way. Wow. And, you know, of those, maybe the statistics these days are something like one in 10 is the kind of planet that could conceivably have oceans and atmospheres and maybe biology. So, okay, that makes 100 billion inhabited worlds in the Milky Way. And by the way, the Milky Way is one galaxy out of two trillion galaxies. So, you know, those numbers are so incredibly large that if you say, well, I don't, I don't care what you say, Seth, I don't think they're out there. We're the smartest things in the cosmos. And there are people who say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have a, a pretty high opinion of Homo sapiens. And anybody <laughs> knows that that's probably misplaced. So, you know, we, we think they're out there. And uh, why do it from the standpoint of, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch? Why should they care? They're not funding it. But, you know, if they were funding it, maybe they'd care more about right. <laughs> whether there's anything to it or not. But, you know, you might say, well, why, why do you care? Uh, I think exploration is, in a sense, its own reward. You care because of curiosity. You want to know, look, you know, Earth is pretty special. We have biology here, and we've had dinosaurs, and we've had trilobites, and we've had, you know, all sorts of stuff. And now we have an intelligent species. Is this the only place where that's happened? Or or could it be that the universe is more like, I don't know, Star Wars or something, and there, there are critters everywhere? And it would just be interesting to know, let alone what possible benefits there might be to it. It would just be interesting to know. So that's why we do it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like it's almost, uh, what's the word? Uh, just to think that we're the only ones, like it seems a little Narcissistic? Bit, yeah. Like it's like that we're, <laughs> we're the only ones out here. Like it seems probable that that there's got to be something, something I, out there. Yeah. I remember... Uh, just statistically speaking, it's unlikely, but then the universe is so large that those vast statistics are actually fairly commonplace. Is that accurate to say, uh, Seth? Or, Well, I mean, we don't know. Yeah, so we that's don't know. the thing. We have one example of a planet with life. Now, if we had two, if, you know, the, the, the big bunny, of course, of finding life in space is not looking for intelligent life. It's looking for microbial life or, mm-hmm. you know, something very simple. And places like Mars or two of the moons of Saturn, three of the moons of Jupiter, these are all places which might have life, but, you know, it's going to be microscopic. Uh, and you might say, well, you know, the government is spending money on that. And why would that be interesting? Well, it would be interesting because if you found another form of life, you know, microbes coming out of, 
I don't know, the interior of Saturn's moon Enceladus, for example. <laughs> and that might be the best place to, to look. If you found that, you'd say, oh, well, okay, uh, Enceladus pond scum, that's pretty nifty. But if you looked at, at it, you know, under a microscope and you found it didn't, didn't have DNA, it had some other molecule that was its blueprint molecule, that would be really interesting. And that would tell you something. Uh, that would tell you two things. One, it would tell you something about biology and, you know, how easy it is to make something that's alive. But beyond that, it would tell you, hey, we found another place with life that's only, what is it, 500 million miles? No, it's more like a, a billion miles to Saturn. Okay, only a billion miles away. That is actually not very far. A mm -hmm. billion miles away. And if we find two examples of, of life within a billion miles of each other, the universe must be just infected with life. There must be life yeah. all over the place. It's like, you know, I don't know, dirt. It's like cat hairs in a, in a place <laughs> with 20 cats. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be very commonplace. And, and you think, uh, so if, if tomorrow we found out, you know, oh my God, there's, there's some sort of biological life on Mars. Intelligent life, oh, yeah. That, that even like, the, even not even intelligence, like, but just some, some form like of saying. microbial life. Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't, would that just change everything for you guys, like, right away, pretty much? Well, I, I don't know how it changed me. I mean, you know, I just don't want to go to lunch at 12. But <laughs> maybe you would improve our funding situation. Well, well that's what I was, that's kind of what I was referring to. But yeah. lunch is great, too. Yeah. The only thing is that with Mars, it could be problematic. Because in the case of Mars, it's possible that life could migrate, for example, from Mars to Earth. So you could have a scenario where Mars developed life, you know, four billion years ago, some sort of microbial life. And the Earth was still without life. And, you know, some rock slams into Mars. That happens all the time. And kicks off a clot of dirt. And some of that dirt actually reaches the Earth, which it could. I mean, that, that, that happens too. We have found meteorites here on Earth that have come from Mars. Okay, so, you know, mm -hmm. one of these meteorites drops onto Earth <laughs> four billion years ago and infects the Earth. And so we're descended from the microbes that were in that rock. Uh, that makes us all Martians, if you want to you pencil that in. <laughs> Driver's license. <laughs> but more than that, that means, okay, well, now you still can't say that life is commonplace because, you, you know, it only arose once on Mars instead of once on Earth. So it would be better to find life actually in the outer solar system where it's much, much harder for that life to get to Earth. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, because that, that would prove to you that life is an infection and not, not some sort of miracle. Gotcha. And just to follow up to that, how, how would that be possible that you know maybe a big chunk of mars you know gets gets knocked off and comes to earth wouldn't wouldn't anything living on that chunk wouldn't that die in the like the vacuum of space before getting here or well uh, if you're talking microbes two things microbes are tough uh you, you can do a lot to microbes you know and they, they'll survive i mean they're they're microbes in salt mines they find that got locked in the salt, you know, like a million years ago. And you just take mm. them out of the salt, throw them in water, and they come back alive. So, you know, microbes can go into a spore state and uh, kind of tough it out for long periods of time, certainly long enough to make it from Mars to Earth. But uh, more than that, the ones on the outside of the, the clot of dirt, I agree with you, the, the, the ultraviolet light from the sun and cosmic rays and all that sort of stuff will probably do a number on those guys. But inside the clot of dirt, there will be microbes. There are plenty of microbes inside any clot of dirt you can find outside your house there. And uh, they could survive because they're protected. They're protected. They don't get much water and stuff like that, so they have to sort of go into a spore state for who knows how long, maybe a couple of million years before they accidentally wander into 
you know, collision with the earth, but they can, they can handle that. So, you know, they could, they could make the trip. You would have a hard time if you were kicked off in a cloud of dirt to make it, but they could do it. <laughs> Once again, challenge accepted. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that, I know that's, uh, that's incredible. Um, and these, you can find these microbes here on earth still, right? Some of these microbes are so resilient that the, I remember re- reading a tidbit, like there's a microbe, I can't remember the name, that's so resilient that if an alien species were to study this planet, they would think that's the dominant species versus like humans or something else. <laughs> I well, I don't know, but, you know. Yeah, I need to, I'm not sure. Depends on when, it depends on when they arrived. If they <laughs> arrived, you know, 600, 700 million years ago, all they would find is microbes. And then they might choose one of those microbes and say, all right, these are the, these are the kings of the mountain, whatever. But I, I, I don't think that they would have much trouble in noting if they landed on Earth today that, well, these, whatever species this is, they've got, you know, traffic clogged highways and they've got, you know, big buildings on the surface and they have all this sort of technology. So that, that's something that they would notice. The microbes, uh, they would notice too, but the microbes are rather poor when it comes to, for example, writing great literature. Of course. At least, not that we know of, at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> they think small. Yeah. So I guess, I bet the SETI Institute, you guys must be interested in just the research coming on, happening on Earth too, just if we're trying to find new forms of life or like new for, like bases of life, I guess. Because uh, that should be a blueprint for what you look at outside, correct? Outside the Earth? Well, it it is true. I mean, we don't study, you know, the biology of Earth particularly. That's not our thing. Mm-hmm. But most of the people in the halls here at the SETI Institute, I mean, they're like 70 scientists, I suppose. But all but three of them are what we call astrobiologists. They're studying life that's likely to be microbial and so forth, life in the solar system, that sort of thing, the origins of life, things like that. Only a very tiny fraction of those people are actually doing SETI. The uh, you know the traditional SETI where you use big radio antennas or other instruments to search for signals from intelligence. So most of the scientists here are are indeed interested in uh, you know the kind of life that doesn't write great books, but that might be very commonplace. And it's it's important to study those even from the standpoint of SETI because you know, one of the assumptions you have to make if you say there's somebody out there is that biology will spring up on worlds that have oceans and atmospheres. Maybe not every time, but at least occasionally. And, uh, you know, if uh, again, if you can find it elsewhere in our solar system, that would give you some insight into answering that question. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, you, so you said that you're, you know, you're basically listening out there. So in essence, like how far right now can we hear out there, like, is there like some sort of distance that we know we're 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 listening at least this far out of away from our planet? Interesting question. Well, yeah, the thing is, there's no good answer to that because you know it depends on on how big a transmitter they're willing to build, right? right. It's sort of like asking, well, how far away can you see something with this uh, this new telescope you just built in Chile? Well, it depends on how bright it is, right? Mm-hmm. You, even with your eye, you can see stars that are hundreds of light years away, maybe in some cases even a thousand light years away. With your eyes, you can see the Andromeda galaxy at night. Not in downtown LA, you have to go out into the <laughs> yeah. desert place where it's you know dark, but you can see it with your eyes, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at two million light years away. So there's no limit to how far away you can see as long as uh, you know the subject is bright. With with big telescopes, you can see quasars that are you know ten billion light years away. I mean, so uh, you could say, okay, so SETI could pick up signals from anywhere. Well, that's true, but if you say, look, these guys are not going to, uh, you know, have gazillions of megawatts 
powering their transmitter, right? Then you say, okay, given that energy costs them money too, mm-hmm. then let's look at the nearby stars first. They're the ones that if they have planets with transmitters on them, uh, they'll be the easiest to hear. All I can say is that if you were to be a Klingon listening to Earth, you could hear some of the radars on Earth. Those are the biggest transmitters. You could hear some of the radars for certainly tens and in some cases even a hundred or a couple of hundred light years away. So that's pretty far. Oh, wow. That's actually, that's, and is that signal like something they can decode? They can actually come out with something? Because I know the signal degrades over time. So you tell me a hundred light years away, an alien, if they had the technology, the intelligence to pick up something from Earth, could they decode like an episode of I Love Lucy or something like that? Could they get that kind of information or is this too scrambled at that point? Yeah, well, TV tends to be a fairly weak signal from the Klingon's point of view because uh, <laughs> the, the deal is that you know nobody figured they would be good people to reach with the advertising. So the signals <laughs> were not directed uh, toward the sky. They're directed toward the horizon. Mm. Okay, so that everybody in the LA basin, for example, gets the signal. And that means that the energy of the transmitter is spread out but it, radar, on the other hand, has you know it's very directional, so that's a that's a p- more powerful signal. But you know if the aliens have antennas that are hundreds of times bigger than ours, and after all, that's not really so hard. I mean, I think if they were a thousand or ten thousand years more advanced than we are, they would certainly have that kind of thing. Then, in principle, they could pick up television, mm-hmm. and uh, could they decode it? Well, in the case of I Love Lucy, that was sent out when television was analog. Mm-hmm. And uh, anybody who uh, studies uh, television technology knows that the signal, even in the case of color television signals, was not very complicated. I think that they could, I think that they could figure it out and turn it into pictures and sound. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they may, might have things left to right, reverse, or who knows? They might make some errors in decoding. I, I don't know that they would get the jokes, though. I have to say. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a certain taste to get those jokes. <laughs> but Ricky, <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> So uh, to back it up just just a second here. Um, so this is kind of a double question. So when did when did SETI actually start, and what's what's the difference between the technology that we were using then to try to listen versus now? Well, the idea of trying to you know kind of eavesdrop on aliens that idea is pretty old. Uh, even at the time of the American Civil War, there were people talking about maybe. You know, the Martians are lighting fires or rearranging their landscape or doing something that we could see to prove that there really is somebody on Mars. And mm-hmm. Mars is always everybody's favorite inhabited planet. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, of course, there was a big to-do about canals on Mars or a couple of well-known people who thought they could see canals on Mars. And if there were canals, and presumably there was a lot of, you know, international trade and uh, hopefully completely equitable trade. Anyhow, so they had all this possibility, uh, but none of that would have worked because there are no canals on Mars and uh, Mm -hmm. there's no advanced society on Mars. But, I mean, there might be microbes, but, you know, that's probably the extent of it. The idea of using more modern science and more modern astronomy to try and eavesdrop on ET, that goes back to 1960 when a fellow by the name of Frank Drake, an astronomer, used an antenna in West Virginia, pointed at a couple of nearby stars, and uh, used some modern radio equipment. Okay, he could listen to one channel at a time, right, and he would just sort of tune the dial, hoping to hear something. Today, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, we we listen to 70 million channels. We have antennas that are much bigger than what Frank Drake had 
And, uh, you know, we don't listen to just two stars. We listen to thousands of stars every year, hoping to hear something. So the experiment has gotten much, 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 much better and faster. And, but that's uh, mostly the march of technology. Right. Do, do we ever, I know we're li- that you guys are listening, but have you guys ever, like, do you send anything out? Do you ever send anything out in any certain direction or anything like that? You mean beside the fundraising letters? We, do. <laughs> we don't send us money. That's that's the first thing. <laughs> well, indeed, that's that, that's the whole problem right here. But yeah. we don't transmit. No, we don't. We, in fact, don't even have transmitters. In fact, you wouldn't want transmitters near these receivers because you just you know you just fry them. Oh. Uh, if you drive into the observatory, and you can go visit anybody, can go visit it. But you have to you know turn off your cell phone, for example. And uh, the reason is oh, that. Wow. Uh, a, there are no cell phone towers around. Just to, you know, obviously we don't locate the antennas where there are cell phone towers because they just cause interference. But more than that, the transmitter in your cell phone, while not very powerful, it's powerful enough if you got it close to one of the antennas to fry the electronics in there. So that's an expensive uh, thing. So we don't have any transmitters. Uh, there are people who do want to transmit, and in fact, there are some people who have transmitted. So there are experiments to do that, and uh, yeah, I. I, I don't, you know, there, there are people who think it's dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous, but there are people who do. Yeah, that's, uh, what, I, that's what I wanted to ask as well, like what, what your thoughts were on that. Because there's a whole section of people that believe that, hey, we shouldn't be sending stuff out there. If they're smarter than us, they're going to come and, you know, blast us into oblivion, right? Or take our well, resources, but have you. Yeah, yeah. All, all people that are smarter than I am are interested in blasting me away. <laughs> I, yeah, it certainly makes sense. Look, I don't know if the aliens would be hostile or not, but there are people who think, oh, well, since you don't know, maybe you shouldn't take a chance and broadcast anything. But I find that that's a fairly peculiar argument because, as, as we've already talked about here, we have been broadcasting since the war, right. the Second World War. Mm-hmm. You know, television, FM, radio, radar, all that stuff's been going out into space. And anybody that has the kind of rocketry that would allow them to come here and uh, do terrible things like, I don't know, incinerate Burbank. Anybody that <laughs> has that capability, they also have the antennas to pick up that stuff. So it's, you know, in a sense, we've been broadcasting for 70 years. Those signals are out there. We've already shouted our presence out into the co- uh, cosmos, so it seems a little silly to worry about, you know, new attempts to do that. And also, I mean, we've sent the Voyager satellites out. <laughs> like that's trying to announce where, yeah. like where we are. Things about human beings, I believe, right? Um, yeah. Um, although they haven't gotten very far, and they're almost impossible to find. Right. So those are right. like you know, like putting bottles in the ocean. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Anybody in Japan, please reply. You know, you <laughs> you might get a response <laughs> <laughs> years later. Um, so I have a question for you. What? Um, are there, what kind of active projects is SETI doing right now, other than list, like particular ways of listening? Like you're saying, you have different experiments rolling versus what's going on at Berkeley. Uh, like, can you talk about any of those? What's what, like some of the most interesting ones that are going on at SETI? Well, we tend to look at some interesting targets. We've looked at uh, what's called Tabby Star. That's a peculiar star that seems to dim enormously occasionally, and uh, somebody's suggested. Uh, um, Jason Wright, actually, is the name of the guy at Penn State. He said, well, although it's not likely, uh, it's a possibility to imagine that there's a planet around this star that has clever inhabitants that have built what's called a Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm, a bunch of solar cell satellites 
that uh, orbit their sun and occasionally block the light from it. So that's the habitat of a very advanced society. We've we've listened for signals in that direction and some other special targets. Uh, there are new planets being found all the time. But some of them are found around what are called red dwarf stars. These are the kind of the runts of the universe. They're stars that are smaller than the sun and much dimmer than the sun in general. And we never used to think that they were great places for life for a host of reasons. But they seem to have planets, and they seem to have planets that uh, very often are at the right distance from that star to be you know, capable of having the conditions for life. So because there's so many of these red dwarfs, uh, they're a very tempting target. And we are, in fact, uh, looking at 20,000 of them, actually, with the Allen Telescope Array over the course of a two-year time frame. So that's, that's one project that we're doing, and that's sort of our go-to project. Okay, so just because just because you're you're a planet next to a red dwarf star, you used to think that there that it wouldn't be possible for life, but you guys have kind of retooled that belief. Or we have, we have. There were there are a couple of reasons why red dwarfs never appeared. Sorry, never appealed to the Cetia community. One is that a lot of red dwarfs tend to be hyperactive. They're kind of like teenagers, and as a result, they they, they have these big flares coming off them and so forth. And the thought was, well, if you were on a planet around one of these stars, you know, a big flare would go off and you'd be cooked with the high-energy radiation or ultraviolet, whatever. It would just be bad for your health. Well, it turns out that a lot of the red dwarfs kind of settle down after a couple of hundred million years, which isn't very long. And the other thing about red dwarfs always was that they're so dim that if you're not on a planet that's in a really, really small orbit, a really tight orbit around one of these babies – uh, you're not going to get enough warmth to keep your oceans from freezing solid. So the thought was, yeah, okay, so they'll be really close in planets, but if they're close in, this is one more problem that develops, and that is they become what's called tidally locked. So one side always faces the star. The other side always faces away from the star. It's just like the moon. The mm. moon is tidally locked at Earth, and one side always faces the Earth. So in the case of a planet, that's bad news for you because that means one side gets really, really hot and the other side gets really, really cold and the atmosphere just turns into snow on the cold side and that's it. Nobody can breathe. Hmm. But, you know, that was very naive. It turns out that if you have a planet like that and has an atmosphere and oceans and so forth, then you get winds, you get ocean currents, you know, uh, and, and there's going to be some place between the hot side and the cold side where the temperatures are – you know, just as attractive as uh, they would be in, uh, you know, San Francisco, if so, they're attractive there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when, like, when NASA announces um, they found a new exoplanet, wait, backing up, exoplanets are these, and you correct me if I'm wrong, exoplanets, I'm just saying this for the listeners, exoplanets are planets we find outside our solar system, correct? Right. Correct. All right. So when, a, when NASA announces they find these exoplanets or a new exoplanet that could be habitable or could be another super Earth or something, which super Earths are giant versions of Earth. <laughs> um, like, do you guys focus your satellite like towards there, like in those directions? Like, do, do you get any like reference from NASA and where you point your <laughs> telescopes, et cetera? Well, NASA doesn't fund us at all for mm -hmm. our SETI work, so uh, they, they they can't tell us to look at these things. But And even if they did, they probably couldn't tell us to look at them, but but we do look at them. Okay. Mind you, you have to keep in mind uh, that you know the, the Klingons might have had a SETI experiment 100 million years ago, and they could have spent a lot of time aiming their antennas at Earth. And uh, you know the single-celled organisms in the oceans were kind of quiet. They, they didn't build any transistors. <laughs> right. So – 
you know, just because you find a planet that might be habitable, I mean, Earth is certainly habitable, just because you find planets that might be habitable, you shouldn't assume that, oh, well, all we got to do is look at a half dozen of these and we're bound to find ET. I mean, you know, there's a timing issue here. They have to advance to this stage where they actually have some sort of signaling going on. I have a tangent question off that. Um, are you guys at the SETI Institute excited for the James Webb tel- Telescope? Uh, are you guys looking for? Do you guys get to work with that in any different way? I know yes, NASA doesn't fund you guys or anything like that, but is there any type of partnership, collaboration with that? Well, as I mentioned, ninety-five percent of the scientists here are, in fact, working on mostly NASA money. In fact, and they oh. are interested in, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the solar system objects, but also using James Webb, which probably is up to the task, at least in some cases, of looking at planets around other stars, exoplanets, the nearest ones, anyhow, where you can get a little bit of light from the planet. If you can get, if you can actually see it, there's a little dot, one pixel on your photo. If you can get that one pixel, then you can take the light that was hitting that pixel and pass it through a prism, really a spectroscope, and you can say, ah, there's oxygen in the atmosphere of that planet or methane. You know, if you found either of those, you would be tempted to say, looks like there's some sort of life there. Because the oxygen in our atmosphere, to the extent that there is any anymore, <laughs> the oxygen in our atmosphere is, you know, due to photosynthesis. It's, it was put there by life. The Earth, you know, three billion years ago, there was very little oxygen in the atmosphere. So, you know, if you find oxygen in some, some other world's atmosphere, that's a, that's a good clue that there may be some biology there. I'm not sure if you know this, but I remember reading a few years ago that like, if you were to look at Earth, like how we're looking at other planets trying to find life for like biomarkers of what's going on, um, the fact that oxygen shows up in a very specific percentage shows that it's being, you know, not even it's being uh, generated by, its, by natural occurrences, but also because life is there, it's being promoted more so than normal. Do you, does that make any sense? Am I, or am I just kind of yapping? Well, it's a tough problem because... Mm get some of these gases, methane, for example. Methane, the earliest forms of life actually probably used methane, not oxygen, right? Oxygen is kind of a new development. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, if you find methane in the atmosphere of another planet and you say, well, there's, there, there's some bacteria there. But on the other hand, methane is also produced, you know, in volcanic eruptions. So it's a little different story to say, well, mm-hmm. it could be life. Mm-hmm. Then again, it could be vol- volcanoes. And volcanoes are not what you're looking for. So even in the case of oxygen, there might be some other way that you've made the oxygen. There aren't too many ways. You can look at the atmospheres of Mars or Venus. Uh, these are you know places in our own solar system that are sort of like the Earth, except they don't have any life. And they don't have any oxygen in their atmosphere, really, to speak of. I mean, very trace amounts. So, yeah, oxygen is probably a pretty good uh, indicator. Now, you could say, well, what percentage of the atmosphere should be oxygen? Well, in our own atmosphere, it's 21%. Most of the rest is nitrogen, stuff like that. But, and CO2, we, we have a lot of good carbon dioxide, and, and I'm doing my part to increase the amount of carbon dioxide. <laughs> but, we all are. Yes. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the, the oxygen percentage, it's 21% today, it used to be higher in the past, you know, and you had insects with wingspans the size of a tennis court or whatever because they had more oxygen you know their metabolism could be a little faster but i mean there have been times when there's been less oxygen so you know there's no precise percentage and trying to tease out what would be a convincing bit of evidence that uh, this atmosphere must indicate biology that that keeps some uh, that keeps some astrobiologists uh, you know 
in food. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you a question about something that I'm sure you get asked every single time. You probably do one of these interviews, but the wow signal from, was that at 1977 or? Yes. Okay. Um, Could you just explain briefly what that was? Because that was the SETI Institute that, that found that signal, correct? Well, they would thank you precious little in Columbus, Ohio, for that comment. Actually, it was, <laughs> the SETI Institute didn't even exist till 1984. But okay. the, uh, that, that signal, the wow signal, was found at Ohio State University. And, uh, in fact, they, they had a radio telescope that they, at that point, were using only for SETI work because uh, it wasn't really competitive anymore for normal radio astronomy. So uh, they did find this signal. In fact, the printout... Uh, the, a couple of days after the signal had been seen, the, some guy, a um, fellow by the name of Jerry Amon, was looking through the computer printout from the previous days, and he sees this big signal, and he writes, wow, next to it with a magic marker. That's how it got its name, and that was a bit of genius, uh, because it's become very famous because of this really nifty name. There have yeah. been many other signals that have been found, by the way, and but they don't have such nice names. But the wow signal was never found again. We've been looking actually here and uh, with the Allen Telescope Array. Uh, other people have looked using other instruments around the world. And nobody has ever convincingly seen the wow signal again a second time. You mean Even, look, looking at that same portion of the sky? Yeah, 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 and, and at the same part of the radio dial too. And even the Ohio State uh, Telescope itself automatically looked a second time about 70 seconds after the signal was first recorded and didn't see it. So whatever it was, it was there, and then about a minute later, it was gone. So what do you say about that? I mean, it could have been E.T. just sending a, a pen <laughs> to see if anybody's home, and then they lost interest. Mm-hmm. It's possible. But, you know, if you can't find it a second time, then there's not much you can say about it. I mean, you're, you're not going to claim, hey, we found E.T., but unfortunately, they're off the air now. That's like saying, I found the cure for cancer, but unfortunately, uh, I can't demonstrate it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Has, has has there been any other wow moments like that that maybe we haven't heard about since since that first one? Well, in the old days, which is to say the wow signal was in the 1970s, back in the, the early days when you didn't have the technology that allowed you to quickly check out signals, then you would tend to record the data, right? In this case, it's just recorded on paper, right? But, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, they were recording on computer tapes. But the problem with that was that, okay, you'd pick up a signal, but you couldn't check it right away. You'd, you'd go back to the telescope maybe a month later and, and try and find it again. There were a lot of signals that showed up once, never again. But, you know, you get signals all the time in this biz because there are telecommunication satellites and other sources of interference, even radar down at the local airport. All these things produce interference that look like ET, so you have to be able to sort all that out. I'm so glad you said that because my next question was actually asking you, like, how do you suss out what, what's, what can cause uh, false signals, which you were just listening a few, but how do you go about confirming a signal? Well, if you find a signal and it looks like it might be, in other words, it's a signal that's at one spot on the, on the dial, so it's at a given frequency on the dial, that's, that's not something that nature makes. It doesn't make signals like that. If you find that, what you do is you just sort of move the telescope around the sky and see, okay, I got this signal when I'm pointing at that star there. What if I move it a little bit away from that star? Do I still get the signal? Because if you do, then you can say, you know, this is just a strong signal that's coming in from some other part of the sky due to a satellite or something else, an aircraft with uh, radar, whatever. If you don't find it, 
then you move the antenna back in the, the direction of the star and see if the signal comes back. And if it does, then you move it off again in another direction, that sort of thing, moving back and forth. And that turns out to be a very, very good uh, discriminant, a very good test of whether a signal's really moving across the sky the way the stars do, you know, essentially once every 24 hours, or whether it's a satellite or something else. So that's when you're determining if a signal is legitimate. So what's SETI's policy when it gets to that point? Because I'm sure there's been uh, close calls in the, in the past couple decades. Um, what, what do you guys do at that point? Like you guys have a, a, a highly potential signal that you have no idea where it's coming from. Uh, what happens then? And it says, yo, what's up, guys? Yeah, yeah, what's yeah, up, Earth? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, in the movies, they always speak colloquial English. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They know our grammar system and everything. So <laughs> what happens then? That if they learned English from our own transmissions, it would be English as it was some time ago. Yeah, so it'd be like, what's up, da- uh, I don't know. What's up, gal? How's it going? What's up, ye humans? <laughs> yeah. They, they might speak Latin. Who knows? Anyhow. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what's the policy? What happens when you uh, identify a signal well, and you know it's not uh, a random one or a signal? Yeah, well, yeah. You spend a lot of time confirming it. That's what mm-hmm. you, the first thing you do. Mm-hmm. Because if someone, you don't want to be fooled. You don't want to say, hey, we found ET. And then two days later say, well, actually, no, it was a bug in the software or it was a satellite or it was something else. Mm-hmm. right? So you do check it out. And that would take a couple of days. You'd get other people involved, too. I mean, you'd call up people who also have antennas that can look for this thing and see if they can find it. Because if only you can find it, then it's probably something in your equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you, if you have confirmation from other observatories, then uh, you, know, you just go public with it, of course. Mind you, it already is public by that point. That's our experience. As soon as you get a signal that looks interesting, the, the media are all over it. So it'll be a big story even before you've confirmed it, which means you can expect stories in the future where, wow, it looks like E.T., but uh, two days later, well, it wasn't E.T. Hold on. You're telling me the X-Files lied to me. There is no weird... No, no, the X-Files certainly didn't lie to you, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've had that even this year. There have been a couple of, if you will, false alarms. There was a big story in the spring about the Russians had found a signal and all that sort of stuff, but none of that... I mean, they'd found something indeed, but it, it was, I think the Russians themselves in the end said it was a military airplane. Um, you know, I mean, nothing has been found that passes the tests. Not yet. Someday it will. I, I don't doubt it, but uh, not, not so far. But really, the, the protocols such as they are, are that you check it out carefully and then you just tell everybody. Of course you tell everybody. You don't have to tell everybody. The media have already told everybody. I can't imagine how exciting it is to like be in that moment and you're drafting your tweet. <laughs> and you're just trying to figure yeah, out. That's right. You yeah. just tweeted. Well, you know, because a lot of, I mean, that's an important question you ask because uh, a great number of people seem to think that if we found a signal that, you know, the federal government would shut it all down and keep it quiet because the public would go, you know, nonlinear if they heard that we right. found it. That kind of thing. And, you know, nothing I, – I think that that's, that's such a bizarre story. Uh, I mean, grab the next 10 people you see on La Cienega Boulevard and say, okay, if you uh, opened your browser tomorrow and it said scientists find a signal coming from 800 light years away, would you stop going to work and start rioting in the streets? And, you know, most, most people would say no. <laughs> no, there's, there's traffic. Is there, is, there, is there a man in black standing behind you right now telling you to say that to us? There's one on each side. Okay, all right. Just wanted to make sure. Just wanted you to make keep sure. Keep your arms folded. Don't make big demands. You know, that's actually awesome that you answer that because it sounds like a very collaborative process 
of what happens when you guys are trying to determine these signals and a lot of uh, working together with like just different institutes just to confirm this stuff. That's awesome. Uh, I'm sure that has to be comforting for everybody listening to this. <laughs> so like, yeah, I would suck if I had to talk to Mulder about something that happened I discovered. And then he's telling me, no, the government's kind of covering it up. No, it's not going to happen. The tweet never got out. Yeah, yeah. Well, Americans in particular like to think their government will cover stuff up. And for its part, the government occasionally does cover stuff up. So, you know, <laughs> it keeps everybody interested. But in the case of SETI, you're talking about discovery science. And, uh, you know, nothing would improve our funding situation faster than to find a signal, to be quite honest. There are a lot of people, for example, who uh, think that NASA covers up evidence for life on Mars. You just go online, and, you know, search for life on Mars. You'll see endless numbers of photos that uh, have been kind of looked at carefully from the rovers on Mars where you mm-hmm. see things like, you know, a double-barreled transmission from some Martian car or, I don't know, <laughs> big bugs that live on Mars and yet there's you know, nothing for them to eat, but they, they still seem to have lived on Mars. That kind of stuff. Uh, and, and when people challenge them on that, they say NASA knows very well that all this stuff is there, but they're not telling us. Yeah. Well, I... <laughs> I mean, they, they obviously don't know that NASA has to fight for every dollar of their budget. Nothing would help more. I want to contribute more on my taxes to NASA. I can't believe they get on Mars. Yeah, I yeah. can't believe NASA gets so little of our budget and SETI too. But uh, I mean, not even a budget. You guys can't get more donations, but no, our, our budget yeah. is zero. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, the the NASA budget. You know, a lot of people think that it's big bucks, and it would be if it was just your personal fortune. But <laughs> it's uh, you know the annual budget is. I think like one part in a thousand of the federal budget, roughly that. Yeah. I think that's right. It's it's like fifteen billion dollars. So only. So yeah. yeah, I mean there are individuals in the U.S. who are worth a good fraction of that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say to some of these people, the the ancient astronaut theorists that that think that we've already been visited? Like yeah, well. I find it remarkable. Well, obviously, I, I don't think there's any good evidence of that. Honestly, I don't. But uh, I, I do find the whole premise kind of kind of interesting that, okay, so aliens visited us in ancient times. Now, for them, ancient times are thousands of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thousands of years ago. The Earth, the Earth is 4,000 <laughs> 4, million years old. Okay, <laughs> so in the last one millionth of Earth's history, they finally decided to visit. And then they, leave. They weren't interested in the stegosauruses or anything. But so, so they come to Earth, and what do they do? I mean, they come all this way, and they help the Egyptians build pointy edifices in the desert. <laughs> right? or, I don't know the pyramids of Giza or uh, wonders yeah, of the world. Yeah. Giza. Or, hey, man, and, those know, were sky maps, man. They were just trying to find their way back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they, they have to rely on giant pyramids as a map. Imagine if you had to, <laughs> if you had to do that for your driving around, you know, the L.A. basin in your car. I ain't got to build these things. Or uh, not only that, or maybe, okay, we'll show these Indians down in Peru how to make big lines in the desert. That's so fun. Now, I mean, there, there, there's so many other things they could have done. Yeah. Because um, you know, these are all things that these people who were not stupid, they were not stupid, uh, they could do for themselves. And, and, and I think they did do them for themselves. And, and also I find it rather remarkable that it's usually – uh, Mesoamerican or uh, South American civilizations that are uh, assumed to have benefited, or the Egyptians. Nobody points to the uh, Colosseum in downtown Rome and says, "See that? 
aliens built that. <laughs> Did they? Somehow no, the kidding. Italians were capable of building something like that, but the Egyptians were too stupid to build pyramids. <laughs> All right. So I think I think we're coming. Uh, well, yeah, we have to ra- start wrapping this up. But, you know, Seth, you probably don't like the show Ancient Aliens then, do you? Well, I've been on it many times. So oh, I do you? like the show. Oh, okay, I good. Really- I haven't even seen that yeah. episode. I, I have not watched that show. I watched the pilot, half of it. And I was like, I, I, I can't watch I, I don't believe the plane and the pyramid thing. And Well, I mean, as I say, the premise is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I don't think that there's any good evidence that the, you know, aliens bother to come to Earth just to help them, these, these, you know, the, these cultures build, uh, build their monuments. I mean, I think that that's kind of a, an insult. <laughs> <to these cults. laughs> I, and that's what I thought, too. I was like, I don't know. I'm going to watch those episodes you're in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I tend to be the skeptic, but. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it obviously has is, is struck a chord because that show has been uh, re-upped many, many seasons. Yeah, totally. I think like at least nine that I know about. And, uh, you know, it's very, very popular. And, hey, look, there are a lot of things on TV that are far less credible than that. Most situations, <laughs> <laughs> comedies, for example. So, what the heck? That's so funny. Seth, I, we're, I'm going to try and wrap this up because I know you got to get going in a minute. Um, I have one more question for you. Um is does SETI have any plans or anything to do or future plans to move beyond just signal finding anything like more physical exploration like sending something out I know we're looking at you know intelligent well, life I think but we're talking about microbial life and stuff like that is that a blip on your radar or what's that like any so is, to speak yeah well, seriously <laughs> well certainly the astrobiologists here uh, they they deal with spacecraft data I don't know. They they don't usually build the spacecraft. They don't build the rockets. Of course. But they will often design and build experiments that go on the rockets. If you're going to send something to try and study microbes that might be being squirted out of Enceladus, for example, I mean, they'll, they'll <laughs> hint, design hint. some of the experiments. <laughs> so in that sense, they're going there. Not personally, but they're, they're sending their hardware. But if you're talking about ET, you know, you're not going to find extraterrestrials in our solar system, I don't think. Uh, so, you know, if that's the kind of life you're interested in, the intelligent variety, you have to pretty much rely on signals. There's no way we can go to the stars. Not not now. Maybe maybe never, but certainly not now. I mean, you know, NASA rockets go at uh, 10 miles a second, 7 miles a second, 8 miles a second. That That's, that's pretty fast, but it would take almost 100,000 years to go to a nearby star that way. So that's not really on for us. I mean, who knows what the future may bring, but if, if you want to explore, you don't have to go yourself. That was true back in 1492, but it's not true anymore. I mean, you got those solar sails going on with the Planetary <laughs> Society. <laughs> you, maybe you can hit Solar sails. Yeah, there's also something called Breakthrough Star Shot, where you use, you know, souped-up lasers to kick very small spacecraft uh, toward the stars at maybe one-fifth the speed of light. So, you know, those are all interesting wow. projects, but it's it's not a matter of putting somebody in a rocket and sending them skyward. If anybody offers to do that to you, I would recommend that you tell them no because the chances that you'll survive that are not uh, not great. <laughs> Seth, thank you for being on our show. You are highly informative and I I've enjoyed talking to you. You're you're awesome. Thank yeah, you. This has been a great episode. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, guys, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, Seth, before we sign off, can we tell people where they can find you? Because um, I know you also have some published works, too, like uh, 
what was it? Confessions of an Alien? What was the, what was, uh, yeah, you got it. Yeah, the, yeah. the book is Confessions of an Alien Hunter, and you you could also give them a link to our radio show, believe it or not. Yeah. We, that's that. So, uh, yeah, that's big picture science. But, you know, this is all on the, well, not all of it, but some of it. It's just on the SETI Institute website, which is just SETI.org. Cool. Awesome. And as Seth said, you know, they're funded by us. So if you guys want to make a donation, get on there and let's find some aliens together. <laughs> yeah, man. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's expand our, 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 our world a little bit, please. Um, Seth, thank you so much again. You're quite welcome. Good luck with it, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. I want to talk to Seth again. We have to have him on the show again. <laughs> Instantly, Instantly. Afterwards, there's no question. I, 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 he has a lot more knowledge than he was able to talk about even on this episode. Yeah, and He's, I mean, to be honest, we, again, you know, we record these, you know, a little while before we post them. Mm-hmm. And even in the interim, there has been, you know, things that have come up that we, we could we could go on for another hour with new, him talking about. New exoplanets, new things being discovered, or maybe like weird way, uh, radio waves are being discovered. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think SETI is awesome. I think more people should know about SETI and the work they're doing. I think they should be taking it seriously um, because it's just alien life. What? Like, I don't know why they sound like that, but like, no, seriously, it's 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 very plausible. Statistically, it's uh, statistically we're not alone. We can't be. Yeah, and and, and these guys, they are very active on social media and uh, I follow them on Facebook and they're constantly doing live videos where you can just go in there in the comments and ask questions and they'll answer it and they they give you tours of the SETI Institute so seriously follow them and uh, check them out if you're interested at all in this kind of stuff. And if for some reason you don't want to do that then just share this episode because we just did it for you so yeah guys thank you for tuning in this week Uh, once again this episode was brought to you by Core Foundation uh, the multi Nonprofit Foundation and uh, check us out at cor-foundation.org. Foundation, foundation, foundation. Check us out. <laughs> we love you guys. See you next week. See ya. Bye bye.